Welcome back to Talk Green to Me, a podcast about materials and sustainability. This episode is a follow-up to our discussion on fertilizers, but with a twist. Today, we have Halius Andreessen from a company called Fossicle. They work on extracting the powders from expired fire extinguishers and turning that material into phosphates. As we discussed in our previous episode, phosphates and phosphorus are some of the most important materials needed for plant growth and therefore makes an excellent fertilizer. Halius's company focuses on sustainability from two aspects, reducing landfill waste and creating a high-value material for the fertilizer industry and for farmers. So we take a waste stream that is actually a toxic uh, chemical waste stream that is at a high cost being landfilled, and we convert that uh, in our pilot plan to a valuable stream that is very useful for uh, agriculture. Helios. Yeah, nice to meet you. So let's start with your background. I, like, I have a bit of an academic background. My background is in uh, chemistry uh, and I did an MBA, uh, health sciences. But that's the more interesting part is I started a company in uh, bioplastics after like I studied in the Netherlands. And it's basically uh, we developed a biopolymer or uh, really uh, two professors of um, mine did, and we just filed a patent, and you know they started working for us. The interesting, most of our uh, target market was for the paper industry, so we found a biopolymer that was very that very well connected with like loads of cellulosic based uh, materials. Anyway, but that's a company that's up and running in the Netherlands. I think I mean I built it up to a pilot plant and then uh, exited before I moved to the states actually lived in Atlanta for a few years, uh, probably be back uh, in about three, four months, uh, I'll make a visit. Anyway, I came to the UK for this company in uh, phosphate. So yes, definitely the phosphorus cycle is, is important, but what we're really doing is phosphate recycling. You mentioned the phosphorus cycle. Could you mm-hmm. explain that a little bit and, and what exactly it is? Well, the phosphorus cycle essentially is we, we take phos- phosphates and the phosphorus. It's, uh, it comes from the earth. It's, it's like an, a fossil resource. Plants use this, uh, you know, in order to grow. Uh, it's particularly useful for like the, the, the stem of plants, like the, to make them strong and vibrant. Once it's used, uh, once the plant dies, for instance, or, you know, it goes back to the earth. It is a, a non-endless resource. So where, where, where I'm getting at is that uh, there's a finite uh, amount of phosphate that is available to us that is only declining. And it's a bit of a dangerous one uh, because we, sure, the world runs on oil and gas, uh, but we can all survive without oil and gas uh, in one way or the other. Uh, at least it's more indirect uh, than phosphate because phosphate really is the driving force uh, or fertilizers is really the driving force behind global food supply in terms of uh, whether or not this is important to recycle this type of material. Oh, it's absolutely uh, important. And therefore, there are so many initiatives uh, in terms of uh, fertilizer uh, recyclability. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So how did you transition from plant-based biopolymers to phosphates? 
Well, so that company, I mean, it's, you know, definitely a strike of luck, but because, uh, you know, starting a, a startup company straight out of university has a very low uh, success rate, much better to work in an industry for a few years, find a niche and then, uh, uh, you know, start a startup company but having started that bioplastic company and because that was such a success we got a lot of media attention in the netherlands i won a few awards did a, a ted talk i don't know, a bunch of newspapers television interviews so i became uh, in my network like the sustainability guy uh, i worked in i moved to the united states uh, worked in sustainability there as well I worked in textiles actually in atlanta uh, and and related to the paper industry uh, I worked for a few years in uh, at Tesla. I okay. did a project there to replace their polyurethane-based uh, uh, materials uh, with a, a recyclable material. Uh, then, at some point, a friend, a common friend, uh, told me that a that my current business partner was dealing with a waste stream uh, that is highly valuable but still toxic and therefore very expensive to get rid of. So it's very expensive to get landfill. He basically introduced us because he figured like, well, you're the sustainability guy in my network. Uh, do you know how to deal with this waste stream? Um, and that's how we got connected. I met my business partner partner virtually. Uh, we just talked on the phone uh, and him being uh, in the UK and me being in the States, uh, we just had numerous conversations, decided to start a business together without even having met in person. Uh, and again, pre-COVID, we started a company uh, got funding for it, conducted research, uh, and got to proper funding for it without ever meeting in person. Uh, but that's how we started uh, the company, and that's how I made that transition from, from one industry to the next, but still yeah. within uh, the same lane. So could you tell me a little bit about FOSCycle, what it does, what your mission is? Well. To make a very plain uh, fire extinguishers that we see everywhere, those big cylinders in red, uh, often at offices, in people have them in their car, especially in the States, in Europe, uh, they're in basically every classroom, every building, and they need to be recycled. So those canisters, they expire essentially after three to five years, depending on the region or country. It's three in the, in the UK, it's five in the Netherlands, it varies across the planet, but they need to be replaced. And the reason is because they might fail after three uh, years. So what happens is there's lots of companies ranging from small mom and pop companies to like larger corporations that collect all these canisters. Uh, and my business partner, uh, his family used to ha still has one of those companies that just collects these fire extinguishers and they take them in, uh, they break open the fire extinguishers, all that metal, uh, they use a scrap metal, uh, but all the other stuff like the, the plastic, uh, the rubber hose, all of it is recycled. And these companies make their money selling off the scrap metal. So these companies, they are only taking the, the actual metal canister, the, yeah, the so can on the outside. They recycle uh, the, the metal and they collect it because it's a heavy, it's a lot of metal that's on there. And they basically can sell that off as scrap metal. Uh, a cost to their company is, or their operations, is powder that's inside these canisters. And that's a significant amount. It's on average about 10 kilo, say 20 to 22 uh, pounds. They cannot repurpose it, cannot recycle it. And they basically have to collect that and then have it shipped off to a landfill site. And 
that is being landfilled at a high cost because it's considered a chemical waste stream. Okay, yeah. So what's in these powders that they're considered a chemical waste stream? They consist of uh, lots of different chemicals, but the main one being uh, phosphate, uh, more specifically monoammonium phosphate, uh, which is, of course, uh, a very valuable material. I think even non-chemists or non-engineers uh, might heard of phosphates being a great uh, use as a fertilizer. So what we do, we take that powder, uh, which is unusable because it contains uh, heavy metal toxins. Uh, it contains lots of fillers. Uh, it contains uh, different type of oils. It's a hydrophobic material. That means that it's uh, water repellent. And therefore, if you would just throw it on the land, uh, you know, if, if, it, if it cannot be dissolved in water, then plants will have a really hard time uh, taking up. They don't have ex access to, this, um, to these phosphates. Basically, these uh, phosphates, the valuable material, is encapsulated uh, by uh, a shell, and therefore it's, it's inaccessible. Right, so we wouldn't want anybody to dump out their fire extinguisher powder directly onto farmland or anything. And so I guess that's where Fosscycle comes in. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we found a chemical solution um, that is very scalable in order to get rid of all those toxins and those fillers, extract just the valuable materials that are, in our case, uh, the phosphates uh, and sulfate. And we're able to repurpose that and then sell that off to a uh, fertilizer manufacturing company. Okay. And so right now you're still at the pilot plant scale. Uh, well, we built a pilot plant uh, last summer. We're building the commercial uh, version, which is an intermediate version. We Ideally, you'd like to scale it uh, a thousand times bigger, literally like three orders of magnitude. Uh, but there's an intermediate step in order to get there. Right. So Fosscycle, I guess, your claim to fame is this chemical that you have been able to create to do this extraction. Is that right? It's a combination of a chemical that we haven't per se created the chemical, but we have applied it from a different industry to this particular problem. Okay. And so where do you get your phosphates from? Do you collect the powder from these mom and pop shops that collect the extinguishers? Exactly. Yeah. When I first looked at the business case and I figured like, well, if these canisters are all literally all over the place and you have to collect them as a business, you have to set up this whole network. And I, at first I like, I nixed this as one of the options that I was going to work on. Uh, but then I've, I found out like, it's actually not us, you know, this company is not doing the uh, collection. It's actually other companies. And these can either be, like I said, small mom and pop stores that you work in a local region and collect all these fire extinguishers or it's bigger corporations that um, basically put new canisters out there and at the same time they provide a service where they collect those canisters, but then they're just stuck with those canisters uh, and they just do the same as the mom and pop stores. They break them open, sell the scrap metal, and you know they have a cost on their hand for the uh, waste extinguishing powder. We're right in the middle. We just take in, uh, we don't take in small canisters or cylinders. What we do is we just take in uh, a thousand kilo bags pure powder. We don't even see the cylinder. I see. Let's talk about fire extinguishers in general a little bit more. So you said True. they have, you know, these heavy metal toxins, um, phosphates, all these things inside them. So mm -hmm. why do they expire? Essentially because they expire because they, at some point, they, over time, 
the powder inside erodes. So what happens is there might be a tiny fraction of a fraction of the powder that might uh, uh, cluster together, for instance. And that might, so you can imagine this powder needs to be very free flowing in order to be uh, used as a, in a fire extinguishing uh, cylinder, because then, it, you know, it needs to exit that cylinder and be like sprayed in a big cloud over, over a fire. As soon as there's only a few particles or a bunch of particles that cluster together because due to age or exposure to certain elements, powder inside uh, will deteriorate. And as soon as it deteriorates even slightly, uh, then it increases the failure rate of these fire extinguishers. And there's, of course, one thing that you cannot have in case of a big fire is these extinguishers malfunctioning or not like, you know, spraying that powder that will extinguish the fires. Okay. Right now, all the powder goes to landfill. It is landfill. Yeah. And not just any landfill. These are specially designated, like, landfills for chemical waste so they're you know a multiple of four to five times more expensive than regular landfilling um, and also they're much more detrimental to the uh, environment because even the landfill itself uh, is layered with a mon- bunch of uh, different type of plastics and polymers in order to like prevent any leakage so your technology is able to extract this material and reuse it and turn it into fertilizer that's right yeah I guess, like, who would your ideal customers be? Uh, so we have already some customers because we're already producing uh, volume about it's relatively small. But we essentially, we don't really directly sell to farmers, uh, but we sell to fertilized manufacturers. So these are uh, companies that uh, buy uh, phosphate rock, for instance, uh, from Morocco, for instance. That's a big uh, origin of, the, of those type of materials. And then they create their own uh, fertilizer. So instead of... Uh, using the the phosphate rock that they have to ship in from wherever and then uh, basically have to treat that. And it's an ammonium uh, treatment process in order to to, uh, extract these uh, phosphates properly. They now have an alternative where they can use uh, basically material that's already there. Uh, It's not, it hasn't been mined and it's basically repurposed from a landfill. So our customer base consists mostly of uh, fertilizer producing companies. So these are companies that just blend different type of nutrients. So that can be phosphates, that can be nitrogen, uh, that can be different uh, plant nutrients. Could you give us any examples or facts or statistics about reducing phosphate mining or anything like that? So if you would uh, look at the process for just phosphate production for fertilizers, the mining itself is not even that extremely detrimental in terms of high carbon footprint. What is mostly uh, detrimental to the environment is its processing. So one of the processes that is being used to uh, create this P2O5, this phosphate-based fertilizer, is that is being done by, by a highly carbon footprint intensive uh, process uh, using ammonia. For every uh, kilo of, of phosphate produced, you have a multiple of ammonia that you need in order to produce that. So, and if you look at the, the process to produce ammonia, uh, then that carbon footprint is even higher. You know, added on to that is also the logistical cost because there's only so many places in the world that, uh, that exhibit phosphate rock. So there's the logistics that are there, the different chemical processes that these rocks have to go through in order to be viable as a a, a commercial product for fertilizers is tremendous. 
Yeah, wow, that's really a big benefit to not have all that transportation cost as well. Uh, what about on the landfilling side? Instead of all this, all this firing extinguishing powder, like thousands and thousands, like hundreds of thousands of, of, of tons, so we're talking millions and millions of pounds or kilos annually going into landfill, uh, we save all that landfill space. If you want to have straight facts, I know that in uh, like our research has shown that there's about 120,000 tons per annum of this waste material just being wasted in Northern Europe alone. Um, so in terms of conversion that to you know CO2 saved, it, it, it's quite impactful. Yeah, definitely. So in terms of the comparison between processing phosphate out of rocks versus <clears throat> processing phosphates out of used fire extinguishers, what are the benefits there? Of course, we have some, uh, you know, we, we have some heat, we have some, uh, you know, there's labor involved, there is uh, a carbon footprint to our process, uh, but it's infinitely uh, less carbon footprint intensive if you compare it to uh, the mining, the processing of commonly used phosphate rock. Yeah. The material that comes out of your process, mm -hmm. is it pure phosphate? Is it, is it P205 that you sell to fertilizer manufacturers or is it just phosphate that they blend? We have some nitrogen in our material, uh, that in our product that just uh, that we happen to have in there. We have, uh, of course, phosphate, which is the big, big nutrient. Um, and we also have sulfate. Okay, and so the fertilizer company will do the final blending depending on what is already in there depending on the crop. So if they would sell it, for instance, to potato farmers, which is one of the bigger crops here in the UK, then uh, they would add a potash uh, just to uh, enrich the uh, fertilizer, because uh, then it's perfect and straightforward for the potato farmers. Okay, so you would provide everything else, they would add potash and that would go into the crop. Yeah, and, and if they would, for instance, uh, you know, have uh, sell to, uh, to spring wheat farmers or uh, cabbage farmers, whatever the crop may be, they'll uh, cater that specific, they'll blend specifically for that market or for that crop more specifically. Um, so we provide some uh, bulk nutrients. They might add uh, micronutrients or they might add like other nutrients that are specifically key for that uh, crop that our farmers are harvesting and for that region, because depending on the region and soil levels, it, they might specify that for them. We, we just provide the bulk chemical. Right. What kind of uh, challenges have you typically faced in this industry? I think like I think one of the things that has been challenging, especially in the beginning to, you know, in the beginning, it, as any startup, you have a new technology, it works in the lab. I think that even to explain to uh, stake potential stakeholders or, or stakeholders that you want to get involved is explain that the added value of your, your, your product. And typically stakeholders only see from one perspective. Wait, what do you mean by that? So collectors of these fire extinguishers see from one side where they say, hey, yes, this is great. We have all this fire extinguishing powder. We don't know what to do with it. The only thing we can landfill, well, great from a sustainability point of view. If you can take this powder, uh, you know, we don't have the, the, the immense cost for it. And plus it's good for the environment because you have to, you don't have to landfill it. Wonderful. So that they only really see that side. And the other side, you know, on, on the farmer side, if you will, on the selling side, 
they only see like, oh, great, this material is not, it doesn't have to be mined, doesn't come with this ridiculously high uh, carbon footprint attached to it. So I guess to your point, like what is the like one of the challenges? One of the challenges is is giving people the whole picture, like the whole picture of sustainability. Okay, no, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think another big challenge is convincing people that yes, this is a waste stream, and it goes into a food um, sector, but it's still very safe. Yeah, I can see where that would be a challenge. So how do you get past that? What that requires is absolutely unequivocally rigorous research and data and reporting. So we work, for instance, with Cambridge University. They are the authority in Europe when it comes to agriculture and, and, and fertilizers. So they do a very long, intensive uh, and expensive uh, study in terms of making sure that this is safe, that it actually adds value and uh, that it's that is completely fine for uh, its fertilizing purposes. Are you able to get rid of all the like heavy metal toxicity and everything? Yeah, um, knowing that we wanted to go into uh, agriculture, that was one of the, the, the main priorities. Like, you know, it's one thing to, for it to be usable. It's another thing to be uh, completely void of any uh, harmful substance, substances in it. Um, and actually, I, I was completely unaware of this, the, the agriculture market as such, until I really started working in it now. And I was astonished how much part of my friend's crap is being used currently just to throw on land that has some type of nutrient value. Uh, but despite that really low barrier uh, for us to really enter it, because we, you know, we could relatively easily, with much less rigor, go in and sell this product for, uh, to farmers. Um, knowing that we have a waste stream uh, made us, you know, go above and beyond in terms of, of safety. Are there any concerns in terms of like the actual production plant, any VOCs produced, anything for labor? Uh, no VOCs produced. It's a very straightforward technology and therefore very straightforward uh, process. Um, I think one of the big benefits of our process is that we kept it very simple. Uh, there have been other research projects in the past because I think a lot of people, if they would look at this waste stream and they see phosphate, they automatically think like, well, couldn't that be used as a fertilizer? Is because isn't that used for plants? Um, so there have definitely been many attempts to uh, do this, but I think a lot of it has been like very like high tech and very academic. In our team, we were much more focused on like making it practically work. So we have a very almost like over like you would think overly simplified uh, process. It, it works in two ways: it's scalable uh, and it's fairly uh, safe. Yeah, that's awesome. I guess where do you see this industry going? Well, we essentially have two industries, right? So on one hand, we see that uh, the collection companies that collect these uh, expired fire extinguishers they see that they a get much higher volume because around the world the uh, the laws around like fire safety are getting stricter and stricter even some companies just have it as a standard that every year these fire extinguishers are being uh, uh, replaced um, so that's a definitely a, a change that we see happening more and more and we don't just see this in, in europe or the united states we also see this in in countries like dubai for instance now, on the other side, which I think is a very interesting side of our market, the farmers, uh, and I hinted at this earlier, see a much higher pressure in terms of reducing their carbon footprint of their whole operation, but also the products that they buy and specifically uh, fertilizers. Then I see that much more expanding. 
you said there are like more legislations coming up about farmers reducing their carbon footprints. I don't know if I was aware of that. And what, what kind of sustainability goals or requirements do farmers have to put up with at this point? Um, what happened in or has ha- is happening currently, and it's it's turning into legislation uh, within the next few years, undoubtedly, is that you know this is definitely consumer consumer driven, where consumers at the grocery store they demand products now that are much more sustainable. Um, this results in supermarkets and supermarket chain really already picking farmers or groups of farmers where they say like, well, how big is your farm? Uh, carbon footprint. Like the lower that is, uh, the more likely they'll be getting long-term contracts with uh, supermarket chains for their uh, produce. So farmers have this incentive to reduce their carbon footprint of their whole operation. So, and of course, fertilizer is a big piece of that pie of that carbon footprint that they're having to deal with. Yeah, I uh, I never would have realized that farmers are actually thinking about these things. So it's consumer driven. And is that translating to real change in how companies are operating? There are already fertilizer uh, producing companies uh, that they sell to farmers and they already put the carbon footprint of those fertilizers on the package. So farmers know instantly like, hey, this even though it's not legislation yet, um, they see that, you know, if they buy a ton, uh, you know, a thousand kilo of fertilizer, they know also the amount of carbon footprint that uh, is inherent into uh, that specific fertilizer. So that that push uh, is really driven by consumers uh, through the produce that grocery stores sell uh, to the farmers uh, that then, uh, you know, are, are looking to cut down their carbon footprint and therefore, uh, you know, spend uh, time and effort into selecting those fertilizers that have a lower carbon footprint. Yeah. So that's definitely something consumers are completely or probably unaware of, um, but it's still having an impact into like the whole value chain of that uh, industry. Yeah, that's great. Is there any way that, you know, aside from maybe knowing about the carbon footprint of fertilizers, is there any way that like a general audience or any kind of listener would be able to get involved in what you're doing? Are there specific companies that you buy your fire extinguishers from? Um, yes, I mean, that's definitely like what uh, our future vision is. Uh, I don't think it's there yet, especially for our audience in uh, the United States. Um, okay. I think it's an it's an interesting question to ask, uh, you know, anyone, any company or, or, or school administrator or even like people at home that are placing fire extinguishers somewhere like, hey, what will happen after three years uh, with this uh, fire extinguisher? To just right. even ask the question, I think, is already uh, a great start. If I was to cycle out my fire extinguisher, should I be giving them to a certain group that won't necessarily landfill it, that is looking at alternatives like your company for being able to extract that material out? Yeah, no, absolutely. There's definitely companies and we already have like a a small list of companies that we work with uh, directly that are essentially our suppliers of uh, material. They're listed on our website. Uh, A great one is uh, CDS. It's a local company here in the UK, uh, but they're a company that like really like does everything in terms of recycling. They uh, so they're a collecting company and they recycle 100 percent cylinder that they, they pick up. So from literally from the, the the little pieces of metal to like the plastic hose, the the content of it, the powder itself that goes to us. Okay, yeah, that's good to know. I know there's a couple of companies in Italy and maybe one in Japan as well 
We'll see if we can find any U.S.-based companies and add them to our website for our listeners as well. Do you have anything else for a general audience? I think the bigger aspiration or the bigger vision that uh, I would like people to take home is uh, to think about that there's no waste stream or that, that all the waste streams that are there, there is highly likely some type of repurposing, some type of upcycling, some type of revaluing uh, that waste stream. Uh, I think it's one of the biggest opportunities of our generation uh, to look at the gigantic amount of uh, waste that is produced. And I'm not just talking about house waste, I'm not just talking about, and literally talking about everything that is, is currently being disposed, there is value to be had. And uh, I'm a big believer uh, of sustainability, uh, but I'm also a big believer of the society that we're in, uh, which is a capitalist society. And I think the biggest take home message, I would say would be uh, to combine the two, the, the way to have true impact uh, in sustainability, I believe, is through commercialization. Um, so by having financial commercial impact, you'll have an even bigger impact in sustainability. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's definitely something to think about. And, and I think you're right. As long as people are thinking about what to do with their waste, that's a good start. And mm-hmm. hopefully, you know, companies and legislation catches up with some of the thoughts that people have, because now I will be looking for uh, at least a company that repurposes a fire extinguisher in the States. Um, just knowing that there are things like this out there, which I hope that other people will do. Um, so I think that's most of the questions that I had. Um, mm-hmm. There's anything else you want to share with an audience? Um, please feel free or else we always like to end with a fun fact. Um, yeah, let me think. Um, huh, that really makes me question whether I'm too serious, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Well, one thing is interesting. I mean, it's more of an interesting uh, effect than anything. Like if you look at the tiny, the tiniest microstructure of this material, this specific material, uh, like an electro microscopic image, uh, like nine out of 10 times, and that's just because the, how these salts essentially are, are formed, uh, they look like smileys. Oh, really? So when you... So, I mean, that's, that, I think that's kind of cute. You know, every that time is. I see research from one of the universities, it's, it's like I'm getting a bunch of smileys in the mail, you know? <laughs> but yeah. really, it's, it, it's a, you know, structure analysis. That's really great. If you have a picture of that, we would love to um, share it when we send the episode. That would be great. Well, Helios, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Well, have a good weekend, and I look forward to the end result. Yeah, thank you so much. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. This episode was edited and produced by Manali Banerjee and Nasreen Khan. Music is by Shang Young. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TGTM Podcast, or you can email us at talkgreentomepodcast at gmail.com.